0: This week on WealthTrack, looking for disruptors. Top performing fund manager Alex Humansky describes his global search for big idea companies that he can possibly hold forever. Next on Consuelo Mack, WealthTrack.
1: Funding provided by Morgan Le Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Legg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce & Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance.
0: Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. When you're hot, you're hot. And this week's WealthTrack guest has been on a tear since launching his Barron Global Advantage Fund in 2012. Alex Umansky is new to WealthTrack, but he's a seasoned investor with an outstanding track record. Umansky joined legendary growth investor Ron Barron's firm in 2011 as a portfolio manager. He oversees about $850 million in assets, including several Barron funds. And one is the now $455 million Barron Global Advantage Fund, which he launched in 2012. Since then, Global Advantage has trounced the market and its competitors, not only since inception, but over the last one, three and five year periods where it ranks in the top percentile of Morningstar's world large stock category. Prior to joining Barron, Umansky spent 18 years at Morgan Stanley, where he ran global and international funds, as well as the firm's Institutional Technology Strategy and Technology Fund. Umansky has a degree in finance, information systems and mathematics from NYU's Stern School of Business and was a computer programmer early in his career. Now, very few money managers have the opportunity to create a new fund, and a tiny percentage deliver the outstanding results Umansky has. I asked him to define what he sees as his competitive advantage at Barron Global Advantage.
1: Number one is we have a very long uh, investment horizon. We think the majority of market participants today Participate in a sprint. Everyone is running very fast and is focused on short-term results. Right. We think the minority of investors are thinking of this as a marathon and looking at you know longer periods of time.
0: So when you say longer periods of time, what are you talking about? Three to five years.
1: Okay. And we actually try to be different
0: than that. There is no finish line. We're not thinking of this you know as a sprint or a marathon. So I'm getting in at twenty, and I my my out price my exit is 30. You're not thinking in those terms. No. Right. The end
1: game is, you know, you
0: never stop. Right. So I think you told me there actually is, that you the, you the time mind. horizon
1: is really forever. Holding right, we company want forever to find the most unique competitively advantaged businesses. Right. And own them for the
0: long term. Own them for as long as those competitive advantages remain in place. So let's talk about the uniquely competitive advantages that you're looking for. You're looking for really big ideas, compelling ideas. Uh, so t- talk to me about, So we wh- think what, of, define what's a compelling idea. We think of every investment
1: in one of two categories. Mm-hmm. You're either a holder of value or you're a big idea. And there's nothing wrong with holding of value. It's, you know, you're picking up your 80 cent dollar and at some point the market's going to be rational and give it the, the right value. Mm-hmm. But we only want companies whose intrinsic value is going to increase significantly over long periods of time. So we're not looking for a 20% return or a 30% return. We're looking for five baggers, 10 baggers. We're looking for companies whose competitive advantage is durable and businesses that are benefiting
0: from disruptive change. And that, that's really what we focus on. How hard is it to find those companies? I mean, you've got a holdings of what, around 50 holdings right now in the yes. global advantage? Yes. So is, is, it, is that a very select group? It's not that hard when
1: your opportunity set is open-ended. Uh-huh. So the other part of our competitive advantage, in my opinion, is that we're not looking to give investors exposure to emerging markets, right. or to small cap, or to technology. We, we trying to find the best ideas anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it allows us to approach every company as an investor first. Mm-hmm. We want to understand uniqueness, you know, whether your competitive advantage is durable, whether you're benefiting from disruptive change and have an opportunity to generate value that will compound for very long periods of time. Um, we think the only thing that's constant in today's world is change. change. And you know, I kind of think of it as Kurzweil effect. I don't know if that's a real term or not, mm-hmm. but Ray Kurzweil is an American inventor who basically talked about how long it takes for a new technology to reach 25% penetration. Mm-hmm. So going back, think electricity, I think it took 48 years for electricity to get to 25% penetration. And then uh, for, um, I think for radio, it was 31 years. And then for PCs, it was 16 years. And for the internet, it was five years. And then for the smartphone, it was three years. So that rate of change is accelerating. And it is so pervasive that we think every investment has to be evaluated in the context of this disruptive change, whether Mm -hmm. this disruptive change enforces and recreates your competitive advantage and makes it longer or in fact disrupts your business and you know, and, and makes your business model obsolete. Mm-hmm. So we think data is the new oil. Right. And data is the most important thing and cloud and big data and, and these are, these are very large Uh, changes that are happening. Mm -hmm. So when we're approaching our investment universe, which, as I mentioned, is somewhat Mm open-ended, many of the companies where we end up developing conviction that their
0: growth is durable happen to be in these categories. I see. How do you identify disruption, number one? And number two is, let's talk about where disruption is happening. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in your process. Sure.
1: So some of it is obvious and has been playing out already. Mm-hmm. Others are kind of less obvious. And So think of probably the biggest one is digitization. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. We're talking about data being the new oil. The yes. world is getting digitized. Uh, you look 20 years ago, all advertising was in the analog form. I think radio, TV, print, billboards, right? And then uh, Google comes about and Facebook comes about and a large portion of these advertising dollars shifts to digital. Mm-hmm. And you look at it today, more than 50% of this trillion dollar industry is already in digital, in digital form, advertising. Right? And in the meantime, print, you know, newspapers, magazines have suffered tremendously. Right. Uh, billboards, radio, used to be very predictable, hasn't been so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen this with e-commerce, right? I don't know if it's 25 or however many years ago, all retail was brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Now 15% of all retail transactions in this country are done through e-commerce, right, right. So you have, you know, Amazon and you know Alibaba in China and Mercado Libre in Latin America that right. are digitizing. Right, all of these are
0: holdings of yours, and right. They're right.
1: digitizing commerce. Yeah, Facebook that's and Google that's digitized advertising, mm-hmm. but there are other things that are less apparent. Um, banking is getting digitized. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is getting digitized. So we talked about the shift in software where you know years ago, all of the workloads were being done on mainframes, mm-hmm. right? And then there was a multi-decade transition from mainframes to client server. And now we're going client server to the cloud. And that's well understood. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening in healthcare is maybe less well understood or maybe well less covered. Uh, many years ago, medicine was natural and herbal. And then we went from that to small molecules, which is essentially chemicals. Mm-hmm. And then we went from small molecules to large molecules, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're going to personalized medicines. Mm-hmm. Well, so you're going to have Gene therapies. Right. You're going to have cell therapies. Th- this will fundamentally reshape mm-hmm. the, the, the healthcare industry. And the ramifications are, you know, critical to understand for right. companies, for payers, you know, for consumers, right? Because with... Um, Small molecules, you had hundreds of thousands of patients and mm-hmm. treatments would, would cost a few thousand dollars per year pay, per patient. Mm-hmm. Now with large molecules, you have only tens of thousands of patients and it costs $500,000 per patient. When we're gonna get mm-hmm. to real personalized medicine, right. you know, the changes will be very different. Mm-hmm. So the payers need to understand this, the companies need to understand it. But I think even more importantly, we're going from managing diseases to curing diseases, mm-hmm. right? You can now get an inj- injection, and it will cure blindness. Mm-hmm. What's the value on that? Right. How right. do you price that? Right. So this is a very disruptive change that mm-hmm. needs to be, you know, understood, and it will take many years to play out. But these are the kinds of things that, and of course, there's artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and CRISPR and blockchain and you know all these other things.
0: So and, do you identify the disruption first? Is that what you do? And then you say, all right, who are the key players in this? Who, who's going to you know, really benefit from this? How, how does it work? So we start out. by trying to detect
1: change. And then we ask ourselves, is this change real? Okay. Is it material? Yep. And is it going to lead to a dislocation somewhere? Right? So think of, I don't know, electric vehicles, for example. Right. Uh, the way these companies have competed in the past was on the strength of their internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We think internal combustion engine is going to go away. We don't know exactly. Like, or... we don't know exactly when. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not an if anymore. No. We know that that automotive is going towards clean, which we think is electric, mm-hmm. autonomous, shared mobility. Mm-hmm. This is not a world where General Motors or Toyota or VW ha- has a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Right. So we know that that entire Sector is going to be is getting disrupted,
0: right? So but the first and you don't own any traditional is, auto companies for that reason. That is correct. So so industries in that are being plus, disrupted, yes. unless they're doing it, yes.
1: you're out of there. So there are two purposes to this exercise. Right. right. One, you want to understand what's going to be disrupted. Right. So if you understood that e-commerce is going to take a lot of share from brick-and-mortar, perhaps you wouldn't have invested in Sears mm-hmm. or Circuit City, mm-hmm. right? Or you know Best Buy, Macy's. Um, and right. all those retail and, stores and that have been didn't. losing, and we didn't, no. that is correct, okay. we haven't. And then the second part of it is trying to find the companies that are likely going to be the winners mm-hmm. of this transformational change. Mm-hmm. So Amazon has a flagpole position in both e-commerce right. and big data.
0: And, and right? you've and, owned and, Amazon and since its IPO. Uh, and, and and over and my other two, two different places right. of employment, yes. Right.
1: I, I started uh, at Morgan Stanley, And we we have initiated the investment in Amazon at its IPO. Which was in
0: 1997. That is correct.
1: I think the important thing to understand is that there's never been a day when we did not own the stock. Uh Right. We've owned Facebook since the day it went public. Right. Exactly. And Amazon, you
0: know, 1997, uh, Google, 2014, Facebook, uh, 2012. So when you've researched a company that you think is a major disruptor, you tend to own it unless something so something radically changes is that accurate or what we try to focus
1: on is the duration of the company's growth okay so when we were talking about amazon amazon has compounded their growth merchandise value at 52% over the last 20 years wow 52% growth right and majority of investors that found amazon to be either too expensive or too you know for for whatever period of time, certainly did not anticipate that it can grow for as long as it did. So the argument that we're making is that if growth is durable, we're
0: willing to be more patient. But at what level? I mean, is is there, if it were, you know, it's 15%, percent Your kind of your baseline below which it falls, you're no longer interested or... So we we do have a a disciplined process. So our
1: process dictates that we only make an investment when we can do it at 20% discount to its intrinsic value. But we will hold it through, it being fair valued and even somewhat overvalued, typically 20% over the intrinsic value is where we uh, draw a line and would start reducing the position. But I, I, I think it's important to point out that for us, price isn't the most important determinant. How profitable can the company be when it gets to maturity? When you're talking about the companies that are growing very rapidly, it is often that they are over and under-earning. Mm-hmm. So you have to make assumptions about the future profitability of the business, right? The point that I'm trying to make is that by definition, the calculation of intrinsic value is imprecise. Right? And you' make an assumptions and we try to be conservative or appropriately conservative right. and there's a base case and you know an, an optionality or a bull case. But we think we can be more precise so we can have higher conviction in the duration of that growth. Mm-hmm. And the logic is very simple that as long as that intrinsic value continues to compound or mm-hmm. accrue for long periods of time, your margin of safety on the purchase price, is actually larger than what is generally understood by mm-hmm. the investment community.
0: So, use that analysis for us for Amazon, for instance, which a lot of investors, our audience, owns just through the very fact that they're big ind- components of indexes. So, you know, what, what's your? Feeling about Amazon's future? So it is, is and still a large still holding
1: in, in our portfolio. Yes, it is. Yeah. right. Obviously, one or two. right. You know, over the last five years, the stock has done exceedingly well. Yes. And at some point, it reached a trillion-dollar market cap. Um, so, you know, in some ways, easy money has been made. Right. However, when we look at the penetration rates of that industry. Uh, the two of their largest businesses is retail, which you know, e-commerce, as we mentioned, is only 15%, 15%. penetrated. And mm-hmm. we know that number is going to be significantly larger. Right. right. We don't know whether it's going to be 50%, 60%, but we do know it's going to continue to grow. And then, of course, their second business is AWS, so cloud computing. Right. And only 5 to 6% of workloads today are being processed in the cloud. And we've been talking about these migrations, just like you know, everything used to be done on mainframes, mm-hmm. and then over some decades it went from mainframes to client server and distributed on prem environment, where now 95% of the workloads are being done that will migrate towards the cloud. And Amazon today, while no longer a 90% market share player, mm-hmm. is still a clear dominant provider. Mm-hmm. It is getting more competitive with Microsoft's Azure becoming a viable number two. Right. Uh, we're hearing that Google Compute's making a lot of progress. and. But Amazon still has a, you know, at least a three year lead in our opinion. And even though competition has woken up, Amazon still has a flagpole position. And we're talking about an industry that is five or 6% penetrated, mm-hmm. right? So we think, I mean, today it's a, pick a number, $40, $45 billion business, mm-hmm. still growing north of 30% with 25% profit margins, right? As a standalone company, right. you know, the valuation there would be very significant. And then we think that the duration of growth in that business is still multi-multi year, you know. Certainly, I'd say five, eight, you know, probably ten years long. So that gives us the confidence. Now there are other areas that Amazon is disrupting. Mm-hmm. Amazon now is the third-largest digital advertiser mm-hmm. in the world. One other thing I should point out mm-hmm. is we really like platform businesses. Mm-hmm. Right. Platform businesses.
0: And explain what you mean by a platform business. So
1: platform typically usually is a brand that has been able to create an ecosystem around itself that mm-hmm. either incentivizes or downright forces the competition to plug in and co-create value. Mm-hmm. So I think Apple was actually the original right. platform company where you know,
0: they started with iTunes and music. So let's talk about Apple, which actually had a great year stock price-wise last year but you sold it a couple of years ago, right? So so what was the thinking? Yes.
1: So in, 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 with Apple? in the Global Advantage Fund, we sold it, I think, about 18 months ago, uh-huh. maybe two years ago. Uh, and the logic was there are now 3 billion smartphones that are being sold every year. And those units are not growing anymore. It's really just a replacement cycle. And Tim Cook, who's done an exceptional mm-hmm, job, mm-hmm. you know, his reputation is really more as a caretaker yes. and a person who can execute the vision really, really well. But that's not and, where and, you and are. That is not where we are, no. no. Right? So who has a platform then, so, that you're you know, Amazon excited is about. obviously a very large right. platform. And, and, and the point is that you have this ecosystem and you have network effects. And the network effects allow for the platform to be... The more people join the platform, the more valuable it becomes. Right. right? The more developers, the more buyers, the more sellers. And it's in this virtual cycle, which makes the barriers to entry in many cases insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And these platform companies benefit from power law distribution, where one or two dominant guys get the majority of the economics, mm-hmm. right? Winner take most. Right.
0: So is, is Alibaba the seen... platform in China, for instance? And We certainly think so. Yeah.
1: We certainly think that they exhibit all the characteristics of a dominant e-commerce platform mm-hmm. and it extends beyond just e-commerce it's not just about Tmall and Taobao it's about Ant Financial and mm-hmm. the fact that they have you know 750 million people banking actively right. with Alipay right. it's with what they're doing in healthcare. it's with what they're doing with their HEMA stores where you know they're completely digitizing the mm-hmm. food buying experience so you know Yes, Alibaba is a platform. We like platform businesses, mm-hmm. and some of them are obvious. Where mm-hmm. if I tell you that Amazon is a platform business right. because more than half of their revenues come from third-party sellers, right? Basically, people opening digital stores on Amazon rather than trying to compete right. against them, and by the way, in the process, willing to give them anywhere from twenty to thirty percent of their revenues off the top, just for the
0: privilege to sell on their platform. So, who- is there anything that has the kind of potential that, you know, Amazon did or? Alibaba or Facebook or? So,
1: uh, one company is Viva.
0: It's a cloud based
1: software as a service provider for the life sciences industry. They have 90% market share in CRM software for life
0: sciences. All right. What does that mean? I don't know what CRM software is. Uh, for life client sciences. relationship
1: management software. They're basically allowing their clients to be more efficient. And quicker in terms of helping them, let's say, with trials, mm-hmm. right? Making sure that all of the information is available to both companies or um, let's just say clients broadly. That mm-hmm. it's in one place. That it is dynamic. That whenever mm-hmm. an update is made, you know, in, in one uh, document, mm-hmm. it gets picked up by other relevant documents. Huh. Right. So they're accelerating trial times. You know, arguably, they're making companies more successful because. They can see that you know where they're failing a lot sooner. Right. These are right? clinical trials. Uh, these are clinical yes. trials, yes. Which are, you know, growing very very fast mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in this country. So that that's one of the companies. Uh, probably about ten percent of our fund is um, companies that are facilitating digital transformation. Uh huh. So these are companies like EPOM, or uh, Globond, mm-hmm. or Indava, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was, you know, pattern recognition and kind of the process, you know, just applied again and again to similar companies. Uh, our first investment was Epom. This is a consulting firm, largely. Mm-hmm. Think of it as a body shop like Accenture, mm-hmm. but they have hubs in lower cost geographies in Eastern Europe, where, let's say, in Minsk, Right, or, or mm-hmm. more so, where they set up shop next to universities and they hire every data scientist, every PhD, oh, so every smart. computer scientist graduate. Right. 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 And we met the CEO, I don't know, seven or eight years ago when he came to our office and he was talking about this digital transformation. Today everyone's talking about digital transformation. At the time it wasn't as prevalent. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to explain to us that. It's not just the digital revolution, it's the cognitive revolution that the way the new generation consumes information is very different mm-hmm. than the way the older generation mm-hmm. consumed information. What that means is that every company out there, whether you Nike or Disney, you know, or, or, or WorldPay, has to rethink the mm-hmm. way they're communicating with their customers, mm-hmm. the way they are communicating with their employees, Right? The values have changed. The interfaces have changed. And there is simply not enough talent out there to help them achieve that transformation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the thing that struck me at the time was that he said, look, we have 4,000 people that we can send out on assignments. Mm-hmm. Right? If we had 40,000 people, our capacity utilization would be the same. I will be capacity constrained for at least the next ten years plus, mm-hmm. as far as I can see. This is EPAM. This is EPAM. Right. And this is eight years ago. Right. right. Wow. And at the time, the market cap I think was a billion dollars mm-hmm. for a company, and. So that fits well with this duration of growth, yes. right, where he says that our, the demand is going to outstrip supply
0: as far as we can see. Mm-hmm. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, which we ask every guest at the end of a wealth track interview. So is there one thing that we should all own some of? Philosophically, we believe that you know, the
1: highest conviction idea should be at the very top of the portfolio. You know, I'm not going to recommend you know, our 10th or 20th largest mm-hmm. holding, because if we have the highest conviction and it's long-term success, then logically that should be at the very top. So you know, Alibaba and Amazon are two of our largest um, right. holdings, and they kind of flip-flop or interchange depending on which one's doing better on any given month. Uh, we think both of them have a you know, long and, and bright future ahead of them.
0: All right. Alex Umansky, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track for the first time. I don't think it's going to be the last time, so we you appreciate your being here. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. At the close of Every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is don't chase performance. There have been numerous studies showing that individual investors dramatically underperform the very funds they invest in because they buy into a fund when it's done exceptionally well, buy high and chase performance, and sell it when it hits a rough patch, sell low. We call it the underperformance gap. How to avoid it? Invest in funds and managers you believe in that match your investment objectives and risk tolerance, then stay the course and let them do their job. Next week, we're taking you to the opposite end of the fund spectrum. Ariel Investments' Rupal Vonsali on her non-consensus investing value approach. But this week, how poker sharpens Alex Umaski's investing skills. That's our extra feature on WealthTrack.com. Keep connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.